Um, we are in a series on the parables of Jesus, and so um, we are looking at just all the parables of Christ, and today we're going to look at this parable right here. The parable is called The Unforgiving Servant, and so our goal is to look at these parables and find out what Jesus meant by them, and, and, and particularly find out what he meant by them for us. And I think that this is going to be a lesson in dying. Walk with me, if you will. The unforgiving servant is going to be a lesson for us in dying. <laughs> and so last week I said, what I want us to do as a church, as a family, is as we look at these parables of grace, to challenge ourselves, how could we embrace more what it looks like to be last and least and little and losers in this world and dead to ourself, dead to our rights, dead to our self-preservation activities, just dead to a point to where all we can do is allow Jesus to resurrect us in his death. I'm going to take just the first five minutes and just try to exegete the, the, uh, the, or, or tell the parable. Let's, let's do it together. Jesus begins his parable with the words, therefore, we'll come back to that. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And so the first thing I want us to see is, or, or not to miss especially, is that word accounts. The king is an accountant. He has got an account book of checklists, of, of rules, of do's and don'ts, of finances, of debts, of, of reds and blacks. And his primary goal here is to find out what's the cost-to-benefit ratio, and I want to settle these accounts. Um, so very beginning, very early on, Jesus is telling this parable, and he starts with the law. He starts with rules. He starts with accounting, rule-keeping, and he's going to move into grace after just a few minutes. And the next thing we see is he wishes to settle the account. What does that mean? If you're settling an account, it means you're trying to get rid of it. You want to clean it up. You want to clean up the books, right? You want to get these things off the books, or you want to make them right. You want to rectify them. So this is what the king does. He wants to settle his accounts. Moving on. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And so the first guy that comes up, that's how I'm reading it. When he began to do this, the first servant in line came up to him, and he says, how much doth he owe? And the answer is, he doth owe 10,000 talents. Now, I need you to know this real quick. A talent is the highest, greatest uh, reference or largest unit of money that they had in that day. So to say a talent would be like for us to say a billion dollars, right? If I said it's going to cost a billion dollars to build our church, you would think, could it get any higher, right? Is That's just about, I guess I could say trillion. There are people who spend that much money on buildings. But a talent was the highest measure that one could used during that day. So when Jesus starts off the parable, here's a guy who owes not just a talent, but how many? 10,000 talents. In fact, the Knaves Topical Bible says that one who possessed five talents of either gold or silver was considered a multi-millionaire by today's standards. So in Jesus' days, if he had five talents, he would have been a multi-millionaire still today. One talent was the equivalent of 20 years wages for the average worker. So if someone actually did have one talent, they would have had the equivalent of everyone else's 20 years of activity. So think about it. Jesus starts off the parable by saying, this servant owes 10,000 talents, which if you were to break it into years, 10,000, I'm not good with math, times 20, I think is something like 200,000 years worth of labor. Am I right about that? Because I'm not good with math. You, anyone? I'm pretty close, though, right? 10,000 times 20, 200,000, right? 
It's unbelievable. It's an astronomical amount of debt that he has. You couldn't even believe it. just kind of reminds me of the movie. Do you guys remember the movie Austin Powers? Um, Dr. Evil. Remember Dr. Evil? And he lifts his finger up to his mouth and he says, I want you to give me $100 billion. <laughs> and he's, he's saying this over a video camera or whatever, and, and I think it's President Kennedy and, or whoever it was. And he says, he's just laughing out loud. He's like, <laughs> Dr. Evil, this is 1969. That kind of money doesn't even exist. And then the whole cabinet starts laughing with him and they're like, that's like saying, give me a kajillion bazillion dollars. <laughs> and they're all making fun of them. Essentially, I think that's what Jesus has just done. He just opens up his parable saying, the first guy that comes up owed him a kajillion bazillion dollars. And if you were listening to the parable, you'd be like, what? Jesus basically kind of overkilled it, you know? Or maybe he didn't. Maybe he wants to say something through that. We'll have to think about that in a little bit. And so the next verse is, and since he could not pay, obviously, <laughs> who can pay 200,000 years of their life? or a gajillion bazillion dollars, his master ordered him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had so that some sort of payment can be made. So the king says, yeah, clearly you're not going to be able to get this back to me, so I'm going to sell you. We're going to have an estate sale, essentially, and we're going to sell the whole house. Have you guys ever been to a estate sale? Everything, there's a price tag on everything. Everything's going to go, right? We're getting rid of this whole thing. And so the china, the furniture, the house itself. Oh, by the way, the wife, she got a price tag. The kids, they got price tags. The man, he got a price tag too. And we're going to liquidate everything. And hopefully, we'll, we probably won't get 210,000 talents, but we'll get something. We'll get, we'll get close, maybe. So how is this servant going to respond? He's going to respond the way you and I would all respond, right? He falls on his knees. And he implores him, have patience with me. And I just want to say, honestly, every single one of us would do that, right? There's not a person in here who wouldn't say, I see that I owe you a gajillion, bazillion dollars. You and I both know it ain't going to happen. No, whatever you do, not my wife, not my children. Don't take me. You know what I mean? Just take, don't, please. That's all we can do. <laughs> and he actually says something interesting when he says, have patience on me, the Greek it sounds more like, be big-hearted towards me. Be big-hearted towards me. A guy with a really big heart might be a little soft at that moment and say, okay, maybe, maybe I'll listen to him. But, you know, it's a gazillion, bazillion dollars. I don't know. So what's going to happen next is actually kind of comical. Um, he's imploring him to say, please have patience with me. But then he says, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. So give me some more time, and I will pay you everything back. So how much time does he need? 200,000 years? <laughs> be patient. Be very, very, very patient. I'll get it back, I, I promise. Uh, I, I don't think he's going to make it back. So, so clearly the king's got two choices. Either I'm going to sell him or, or what. Watch what he does. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That's shocking. A kajillion bazillion dollars forgiven. You know what? That's a lot of money, and you owe it to me. But I'm not going to, I don't, I'm going to die to that debt, if you will. I'm going to let it go. I don't need it. And the word pity, I also want to just bring out the ancient colors of that word. In Greek, it, it comes from the word bowels. I'm thinking your bowels are somewhere down here. It comes from the word bowels. And, and because in that ancient period, they believed the seat of compassion was in your bowels. And so you can hear maybe gut, right? So in his gut, this king who had a rightful um, right for a gajillion bazillion dollars, in his gut 
says, huh, I feel compassion for you. I feel sorry for you. I'm going to, I think I want to let it go. So I want, I want you to hear, I want to pause real quick and say something. Um, hear this. The king is responding by his gut, not his head. Because his gut says, I have compassion for you. But his head says, that's a gajillion bazillion dollars. <laughs> and I, could, I need that money. That's my money anyway. You owe it to me. Or, or if you were with us in the beginning, hear also left-handed power versus right-handed power. Let me explain that. Right-handed power is using the force you need to get the results you want. You want money, you shake it out of them. You sell him. Use your right-handed power. Everything in the world today is done by right-handed power. But Jesus magnificently uses left-handed power. Whatever it is that he wants this guy to do, give him the money or change his ways in some ways, instead of forcing it on him, he just says, I forgive you. Left-handed and it's supposed to change this guy completely. See, left-handed power is far more powerful than right-handed power, even though we don't think of it that way. Or even hear another principle. Hear this. The man only has to ask for forgiveness, and he's given it. I think this is almost the first time that Jesus clearly says it in Matthew. Just by asking for forgiveness, and a lot of it, by the way, he gets it. Let me just let Capen, Robert Capen explain it. He does it better than I. He says, the servant has to do nothing more than ask for grace to get grace. It is not that he earns it by extravagantly promising to repay everything at some future date. It is simply that the king cancels the debt for reasons entirely internal to himself. He ignores the nonsense about repayment. He makes no calculations at all about profit and loss. Instead, he simply drops dead to the whole business of bookkeeping, and he forgives the servant, and he wipes the debt out and forgets it ever existed. This is why this is called a parable of grace. The king just forgives him. Okay, so let me just recap real quick before we move on. Consider the scene. Guy walks up, you owe me a gajillion bazillion dollars. The king says, sell him and his wife and his kids. The man, no, please don't. And the king says, okay, I changed my mind. Don't. Forget about it. Let's just forgive him his debt. Think for a minute what you would be thinking if you were that servant. What? Yeah. And not only that, but there's a line of people, right? He just now began. This is the first guy. What if you were one of the, ser the servant behind him? <laughs> or the servant behind him? Wait, what? really? What's gonna, they're going to probably cut his, his head off you know, right now. Or, or this feels like a trick. There's a catch. Or how long can he do this? Can he do this all day? Can he just be giving out debts? He's going to go bankrupt, right? Or what, what about the king's servants who are standing right next to the king? Sir, are you sure? You know, because my salary is included in that somewhere, you know? What's going on here? It's not going to work. This is craziness. It is craziness. And if you were listening to this parable for the first time, you'd be feeling that way. What? A kajillion bazoon? You know, it's just crazy. It's crazy. All right. But here's where the story changes a bit. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Um, now, you don't even really have to be very um, educated about Greek financial systems like everyone else in the world isn't, right? You don't, you don't, to know that this probably means that a denarii is the least um, unit of money in that time. You, you could probably just figure that out by picking up what Jesus is throwing down. <laughs> And it's true. A denarii is the least amount of, because so a talent is the greatest unit of measure, right? A thousand billion kajillion dollars, and a, a denarii is like a penny. It's really what it is. In fact, by definition, um, it is it's equivalent to a tenth of a silver coin, by definition. 
we might call it a dime. Might be a dime. Um, in, in the King James Version, it was translated a penny or a pence. And in the American Standard Version, it's translated as a shilling. It's just, it's just the lowest thing that you can have. Today, if you took a tenth of silver, according to silver costs that fluctuate in our market, it might be worth today about $100 or $200 between there. So, gajillion, bazillion dollars, 100 bucks at the most. But, but, but the original hearers would have heard gajillion, bazillion, a penny, or 100 pennies, a dollar. And so, this guy owes him a dollar, or 100, let's just go with $100 in today's money. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, be big-hearted with me, and I will repay you. So you automatically see the contrast. Same exact story, two different positions. One guy owes a gazillion bazillion, one guy owes $100, and he says, please have patience with me. Please be big-hearted. Same words, everything's the same. And so I know you've probably heard this story before, but let's just pretend like you haven't. What do you think this guy's going to do? Is he going to remember? Oh, I once was in this guy's position. I once said those same things. And is he going to respond positively, negatively? What's going to happen? Well, let me show you because I know you already know. He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, if you are picking up what Jesus is throwing down, your absolute natural reaction to the parable so far would, have, would be to do this. To take a big gasp of air <gasps> and to throw your right hand over your mouth and to say something like, I know he didn't, you know? Or, are you kidding me? What is, oh, it is this is so desperate, you know, this is so bad. This is unbelievable. That's your, that should be how you respond. Am I right? No one would respond differently. No one would say, I agree with him. I would have beat that guy even more. You know what I mean? No one would say that. Everyone would say, oh. This is just unbelievable. Everyone knows that's how he should have responded. Right? Okay, so let me just pull my sleeves up and let's just, be, let's just talk for a second. Right? Do we all know that's how he should have responded? I mean, why? Why is that so obvious? I mean, just because some rich guy lets, you, lets your debt go, does that mean that you're supposed to not collect debts from the poor guys who owe you money? Because you've got to make a buck, Right? Is his response really that obvious? Are we supposed to know it? I mean, okay, what if, he, what if he had patience? Please have patience, I'll pay you back. He probably could pay back $100, right? What if the guy said, you know what, I'll give you two more weeks? Would that have been an okay answer? Or, we, or would we have still gone, <gasps> or is he supposed to say, you owe me $100, but you know what? Despite the fact that I have three kids to feed and a wife, and I've got a lot of other people who owe me money, I'm just going to let it go. Because you know why? Big King Daddy, he let it go for me. I'm going to let it go for you. And if we, push, if we pushed it, right, I have to assume that this guy is probably something like a bookie. For those of you who don't know what a bookie is, ask someone who does. Okay, so, so, so he might be a bookie. How else would he have the debt of 200,000 million gajillion dollars? You know what I mean? Where, did he, where does he get a debt like that? Maybe he's borrowing it from the king, and maybe he's loaning it out to other people, and the king forgives him his debt, but now he's going out and collecting other debts. The bottom line is that the king is a bookkeeper, and this guy's a bookkeeper too. He's got books. This is the way he makes his dough. I'm thinking. I'm just pushing the illustration. I know it's a parable, but let's just push it a little bit. If that's the way he makes his money, then is it clearly obvious that he's supposed to not do that anymore? You owe me money. 
This is the way I make my money. But you know what? Forget about it. And what about the next guy and the next guy? And the ne- is he supposed to just forgive everyone their debt? Or where does that leave him? If I can tell you where it leaves him, it leaves him dead, doesn't it? At least dead to himself, dead to his own rights, possibly dead because he's going to starve, and for sure dead to the way he used to live life, which was as a bookkeeper. <laughs> now he's going to have to live life a completely different way, maybe work with his hands, maybe get a job at McDonald's. It's a totally different world for him. But it's not so obvious, is it? I mean, it seems obvious the way Jesus is telling the story, but if we really roll with it, what's the guy supposed to do? Well, let me uh, read this quote from Capon. We naturally think this. How could anyone outside of a comic book, we ask ourselves, actually fail to see that if you've just been forgiven a multi-million dollar debt and you're freed from slavery to boot, you don't first off go and try to beat a hundred bucks out of someone who's still a slave. The unforgiving servant, however, is anything but a cartoon villain. And here's the, here's the zinger. He is, in fact, exactly what everybody else in the world is. Namely, an average citizen totally unwilling to face death in any way at all. In other words, the king died to his rights to receive the debt from him. And this man is supposed to die to his rights to receive debts from others. But the king was willing to die for him, but he was unwilling to die for others. And so we, like him, we're just like him is what Capon is saying. We receive the gift. We receive, we receive, we receive. We take, we take, we take. And we are unwilling, completely unwilling to say, forget about me. It's about you. (laughs) We're unwilling to die to ourselves, die to our own rights, die to our own self-preservation, and allow others to become winners and us to become the losers. Does that make sense? You see why I think it's about dying? So I said it's a lesson in dying because I think forgiving, you guys might agree with me on this, is a lot like dying. Have you ever had to forgive someone that you would rather have punched in the nose or better yet, stabbed in the back? I mean, just being honest, right? Have you ever laid awake at night just dreaming of stabbing someone in the back? Literally? Am I the only one? Mine wasn't, okay, my dream wasn't stabbing in the back. It was nunchucks to the nose, but that's different. With a a backwards roundhouse. And and, and in order to forgive that person, isn't it a lot like dying? You've got to say, you know what? Keller, one of my favorite authors, says it best. Forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. He starts off by saying, imagine someone who robbed you of your happiness. Maybe they ruined your life. Maybe they stole something from you. Maybe they hurt you. Maybe, they, um, maybe you lost a loved one because of this person. And all you want to do is just, you want justice. Forgiveness means refusing to t- make them pay for what they did. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. All you want to do is get them. And it is a form of suffering You are absorbing their debt. You're absorbing the debt. You're taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. And it hurts terribly, doesn't it? Many people would say it feels like a kind of a death. So here's what I wanted us to hear tonight. 
I, I wanted to see this parable with fresh eyes to say, yes, it's about forgiveness, but really, in the end, we should see this king being willing to die to himself, die to his rights, and we see this young servant unable to die to himself and die to his rights, unwilling to die to his old life and live a new life. He's still a bookkeeper. He's not a grace giver. And Capon says, he's not a comic villain. He's you. You're just exactly like him. Let's read the rest of the story. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So clearly, the other guys knew exactly the way he was supposed to, supposed to respond. He didn't respond that way. Everyone knows it but him. So they go tell the king. And the king says, summon him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt, a gajillion, bazillion dollars, because you pleaded with me. You just asked. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as, and I want you to see that word as, it's important, as I had mercy on you? So the king just tells it like it is. He lays it all out in front of him, and he says, you did not recognize that I died to my rights for you. I had every right to force you to pay that money back. I died to those rights. And more to that, you didn't recognize that I did that for you, but you also didn't seem to have recognized that you were being invited to do that to others. You missed it. You should have given him the same mercy. And then, oh, wait, let me just read this quote because I like it. The king set out before the servant the two scenes he had just been through, and he rubs the salt of them into the wound of the servant's refusal to die. He says, look, this is what you should have died. You didn't. And so let me rub some salt into that wound. In each, there was a creditor with lawful rights, in each, a plea for patience from the debtor and a promise to repay. <laughs> but then the king drives home the one crucial difference. I died for you, for Christ's sake, he says. But you were so busy making plans for your stupid little life, you never even noticed. I gave away all my rights. I died for you. And here you are like, I need to go get my $100. I need to go get, you know, this is my time, <laughs> right? This is my money. This is my special treat. I did all this for you, and all you care about is yourself. That's all you care about is yourself, and so you missed the point. Well, so the king in his anger delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which this, isn't, this doesn't end well. He's going to go to jail for 200,000 years, essentially. That's a, lot of time. That's a long time. But can I just give you even the worst part of this parable? Because it's not over yet. Well, the parable's over. The parable itself is over, but then Jesus tacks on one thing at the end of this parable, which... All of us wishes he didn't, and, and it just gets horrific at this point. Listen to what he says. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Boom. So at first the parable might have been comical, a gazillion bazillion dollars against a penny or two. Ha, 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 I can't believe you did it. I know you didn't. And then, Boom. In the same way, if you don't do that, every single one of you from your heart, my father will have to do the same to you. So even though it's a parable of grace, it's also a parable of judgment. I mean, clearly it's a parable of grace. Forgiveness is given just for asking for it. Compassion from his guts, from a big-hearted God who uses left-handed power or death in order to freely give patience, grace, and total forgiveness, even for astronomical debts. If you've got a gajillion, bazillion debt to God, all you have to do is ask. He'll use his left hand. He'll die for you, give you grace and patience. That's a parable of grace. 
But it's also a parable of judgment. And I need to be clear about this because this is really confusing. It can mess up your theology, and it already has mine. Um, the judgment is given to anyone who does not understand grace. Do you notice that? It's a parable of grace, but the judgment is given to those who don't understand grace. I gave you grace. And not only did I give it to you, but I've invited you into giving others that same grace. And actually, now that I think of it, I'm requiring you to give others that same amount of grace. And if you can't give others that grace, then it proves to me that you've not yet received my grace. If you can't forgive others, then it proves to me that you have not yet fully been forgiven. <laughs> and if you can't die to self, it's because you don't grasp that I work through least little last lost and dead guys. <laughs> I need you to die in order for this to work. Interesting, isn't it? The thing that Jesus tends to take so seriously, we tend to kind of miss, miss just like I think this guy does. Capen says like this, if we refuse to die, and in particular, if we insist on binding others' debts upon them in the name of our own rights to life, we will, by not letting grace have its way through us, cut ourselves off from ever knowing the joy of grace in us. Because forgiveness is like dying, isn't it? Forgiveness is like dying. And the judgment part of this parable is given to those who refuse to forgive or refuse to die. <laughs> if you don't die, like I died, then you're not going to get to receive the grace because you've just missed it. It's pretty troubling, isn't it? Let me give you a couple other verses to trouble you more. Um, Ephesians 4, Paul says, Be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as, see, remember I told you that word as is important, as God in Christ forgave you. It's kind of required. Since God forgave you, you must forgive others. Um, or to put it even clearer, in Colossians 3, Paul says, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. The Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Or we say it all the time, if you grew up in a liturgical church and you prayed this prayer every week, you know that Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, forgive us our debts as we, as we Forgive our debtors. And so there's a, in the exegesis there, there's, there's, a, there's a condition there. Forgive us as we forgive others. And if we don't forgive them, then you won't forgive us. It, it kind of goes that way. <laughs> so if I could put it in a nutshell, I would say an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. If you're unwilling to forgive others, if you're unwilling to die, for, die to self and give to others, it's because you've not been forgiven and you've not truly recognized what it is to have Christ have died for you and given his life for you. <laughs> an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. Uh, there's three different ways, I think, uh, at least I, I got these from Keller, three ways in which you might not be um, able to forgive because of your unforgivenness. Um, you, you, if you can't forgive, it might be because you aren't forgiven. And you might not be forgiven because, one, you don't think there's anything that you need to be forgiven of, or you don't think there's anything wrong of you. This would be a prideful position. I can't forgive other people because I haven't really been forgiven because I don't need anyone to forgive me. I've never done anything wrong, really. And so because I have not offended anyone, when someone offends me, it's really hard for me to forgive them. That's one way. That'd be one way. Another way is the opposite. If you can't forgive... It is because you aren't forgiven, and that is because you don't feel forgivable. 
you feel like your sins are so great that they would never be forgiven. Your, your failures are so uh, uh, huge that no one would ever forgive you. And so because you, it's the opposite of pride, it's a reverse pride. Uh, you're so humbled by your failureness, failureness? You're so humbled by your loserness, whatever, that you don't feel that anyone could forgive you. And so when someone offends you, it's hard for you to imagine what it would feel like to forgive them because you've never been forgiven yourself because no one would forgive you. <laughs> There are actually a lot of people like that. I know a guy who's, I don't think he's a Christian, and we talk about it. He doesn't want to become a Christian because he thinks that in order to become a Christian, he has to receive a free gift of grace, and he doesn't believe in that. There's no way God would forgive me. I've got so much sin, can't forgive me. And I can't believe that God would just forgive me willy-nilly. And then the last way, which is probably the way that this parable is actually speaking to the most, you can't forgive, it's because you've forgotten that you have been forgiven. Which is why Jesus, I think, is telling the parable. This guy either forgot or he's just clueless or he's just selfish. He was given this great gift and he couldn't return it. And you and I, I think, fall into that category. When we fail to forgive others, it's because we have forgotten that he has forgiven us a gajillion bazillion debt. (laughs) And we have a hard time forgiving someone who's 100 pence, right? We do. Even if someone ruined your life, it's still in comparison to a gajillion bajillion bazillion gadillion. There's nothing. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I've wrestled with how to conclude this message because it's, there's, it's about two things. Um, it is about death and dying and how we need to embrace being last and dying to ourselves and our own rights and our own self-preservation because Jesus died for us. And there is no forgiveness without dying. You've got to die. D- d- forgiveness is dying. But it also is specifically about, very specifically about forgiveness. Just pure and simple, do you forgive others? Because the context pushes it that way. I didn't tell you this before, but I did highlight the word therefore. Remember that? Jesus starts the parable by saying, therefore, a king wanted to you know, collect accounts or whatever. Um, and every time you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is it therefore? Right? Therefore is therefore a reason. <laughs> so why is it therefore? And then you always got to look at the next verse or the preceding verse. Um, and the preceding verse to this parable is Peter. Peter asks Jesus a question. You know the question. Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, comma, and I have to forgive him? As many as seven times, Peter asks. Which I think, if you've heard anyone preach on this sermon, I think Peter thinks he's being a good guy, right? Seven times, right? I'll give him seven chances and you're out. You're dead to me, you know? <laughs> Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, period. Therefore, a king, and he tells the parable. So clearly it's about forgiveness. Peter, I'm not telling you to forgive 77, I mean, I mean seven times. I'm telling you to forgive every time. Because here's the parable. Gajillion, bazillion, 100 pence. You've got two choices. Which one are you? If this guy gives you this, you have to give that guy that, and that guy that, and that guy that, and that guy that, over and over and over and over again, even if he doesn't even realize he's a stupid, crooked crook. And then we have to say, and die to ourselves and suck it in and give it to God. That's what we have to do over and over and over again. So the only way I can think to conclude is to have you, challenge you to think in your heart of ways in which you are unforgiving or ways in which you are, as Carrie was saying, kind of judgmental. You kind of raise the bar on everyone else and forget the fact that God has totally lowered the bar on you. <laughs> or those ways in which you refuse to die to yourself and, allow, and, and, and reflect Christ's death 
and give it all away and give your life and give your time and give your energy and give your effort because God gave it all to you. Don't you see that? Stop making plans for your silly, pathetic life. Give it to God. So here's a couple of verses that would bring us to the communion table of the Lord. Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, while you're there, you remember that your brother has something against you, you should leave your gift there before the altar and go. In other words, your worship to God is blocked by this broken relationship. You need to fix it first. That's pretty convicting to me. Mark 11, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Wow, man, I do not like, I do not like these verses. Do you? Anyone like these verses? One more, one more to just to make you sweat. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Forgiveness is dying. And there is no forgiveness without dying, which is why God forgives you, and he cannot do it until someone dies, and Jesus died. Jesus' death allows God to forgive us of our sins. So tonight, as we go to the communion table, we will remember that this is what Jesus did. He died so that I could be forgiven. How pathetic would it be if I can't lay down my life, if I can't die to myself, if I can't forgive those who I don't want to forgive in my life?